Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had moved from there to this country in which you are now living. He did not give him any of it as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and mistreat them during 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after all, or after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great suffering, and our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out ancestors there on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brother, brothers, and Joseph finally became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to him, seventy-five in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there as well as our ancestors. And their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer and Shechem. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made in Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our ancestors to abandon their infants so that they would die. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful before God. For three months, he was brought up in the father's house. And when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his relatives, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his kinsfolk would understand that God, through him, was recruiting them, but they did not understand. The next day he came to some of them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men... You are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became a resident alien in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. Now then, forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble 
and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen in the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. It was this Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? And whom God now sent as both ruler and liberator through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people as he raised me up. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make gods for us who will lead the way for us, as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has happened to him. At that time they made a calf, ordered a sacrifice to the idol, and reveled in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and handed them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer to me slain victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took along the limp, the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship. So I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of his testimony in the wilderness as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. The word of God for the world.
So we're in this series entitled Defining Moments of the Church. And for those of us who maybe have missed one or two, it's good to sort of be refreshed a little bit this summer, talking about and leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit, which you noticed has been in our hymnody, our songs. This Holy Spirit blows on Pentecost and people are moved. Not just the gift of tongues, but the gift of hearing. We talked about the gift of listening. This wasn't business as usual. And these early people of the way, as they were to be called, are grabbed a hold by something. And Peter won't shut up about it. And he's pretty good at healing, too. In fact, Peter and John, of course, are imprisoned for healing a lame man and imprisoned twice. And why? Because of they were speaking in the name of Jesus. There's something about this name, this power, that they continue to witness to. Now these disciples, followers, continue to live out this Christian fellowship, focusing on prayer, breaking of the bread, and the apostles' teaching. And it's really only until chapter 6 that we get a whiff, just a whiff, of dissent. And this is where our text was last week. And this is where Stephen comes in. They needed to elect seven good men to help with the distribution of the food to the poor. And Stephen is elected, named full of wisdom and faith and of the Holy Spirit. And apparently he's a pretty good healer, too. And as Herb said two free-for-alls ago, he didn't really buy into his job description of just being a social worker. He ends up spreading the gospel, sharing his faith out loud, and stirring up a little trouble himself. He's accused of speaking against Moses and of the temple. In fact, as we learned last week, they begin to produce witnesses, saying that he never stopped speaking against the temple and the law. And so in this text that Josh just read, it's a very long one, a very full one, the first question is by the high priest, is this true? Are all these things that they say about you true? Well, let's just say this wasn't a polite invitation to defend himself. And their culture, it was giving them the opportunity to speak their cause, but not to defend themselves as if something was going to change. And he takes the opportunity to share his history, their history. Stephen very much identifies as one of them, a Jewish brother. As he says from the very beginning, of this chapter. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. See, he says, we're all in this same family. We have the same father, Abraham. But something happens when Stephen starts calling out their family dysfunction. Nobody likes to be called out on their stuff. And it's always hard when it comes from one family member to another. I think it's important, though, that we don't see this as a Christian versus Jewish argument. In fact, a good professor um, and friend of mine, Michael Parsons, um, 
from the Department of Religion at Baylor says this. Stephen is not pitting Christianity over against Judaism as though they were two distinct religions. The debate depicted by Luke in Acts 6 and 7 is an intra-Jewish struggle over identity and the continuing role of the law in the temple. To label it otherwise is anachronistic. And so many times we do that, kind of reading backwards. So I think it's important that he, that we know and we see him as speaking this history, this Jewish history, as one of them. In fact, one of you asked in our time at Free For All, what motivated him to do this? And I think that it was his motivation to show them the patterns, to connect dots. From the beginning, he says, from Abraham, we were a nomadic people. Living by faith, trusting God, didn't even know where God was going to send Abraham, and he went. Even in the wilderness, did you notice that piece about they took the tabernacle with them? Again, this nomadic spirit. And then he says, there's this other pattern always at work. We start following God, and then we begin deviating and sort of getting smug and relying on our own resources. And something that was good becomes bad. Say, for example, in the wilderness, when they begin to, to make an idol out of all of their gold rings and jewelry, and they make this calf, because Moses was just taken too long up the mountain. So time and time again, you see these patterns, and Stephen is making it. And this essentially is what Stephen's doing, and, and Michael Parsons helped me see this. I'm going to paraphrase some of what he said. That what Stephen is doing is saying within the Jewish family, within it, there are these two groups. There are those who accept God's message and messengers and those who don't, that reject them. And so Stephen is sort of lumping himself and the church into those who accepted God's message. Abraham, those of uh, Joseph and the prophets, and then eventually Jesus. And then he's saying there's these opponents within the Jewish family that have rejected God's message and messenger, like those Egyptians, Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs, the rebellious ones in the wilderness who built the calf, and the ancestors who killed the prophets. So he begins to delineate within our history, within our one family, there have been these two Jewish groups. And he's saying, I'm in line with this Jewish part of the family, the ones that were obedient to the covenant, the ones that sought to worship God and God alone. All right. So Stephen makes this point. Verse 53. You who have received the law through angels, but you have not obeyed it. There's a difference between receiving the law and keeping the law. It goes to show that we can know the law, recite it, quote it, wear it on our t-shirts, have it on our bumper stickers, but keeping it is a whole other thing. Being faithful 
That's a whole other category. And Stephen, ultimately, is the interpreter. He's interpreting where they went wrong. Again, nobody ever wants to be told where they went wrong. But he's reminding them, it's easy. It's easy to be one of Joseph's brothers. It's easy to give over to just the beginning stages of jealousy. It's easy to begin to get impatient as they were with Moses. And he says, we all need to know our history. Because if we don't know our history, what will happen? It repeats. These same patterns I'm pointing out repeat. And the problem is, they think they are keeping the law. They think they're holding true to it. In fact, as Dave said at Free For All, they may be even fearful that if they lean into this new spirit a little too much, they will be punished and exiled to ba- like they were when they were exiled into Babylon. The problem is, as Raphael pointed out, who is also at the table at Free For All, the very reason they were exiled in the first place is they weren't keeping to the spirit of the law. To take care of the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, not honoring God, but they were offering sacrifices not for the purpose of humility and holiness, but they got into the game of religion. And so they think they're keeping the law, and Stephen breaks in and says, and reinterprets, saying, this is where the Spirit of God is afresh. In fact, he even uses the phrase, you've resisted the Holy Spirit. Let me read it to you. This is not an easy thing to swallow. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Let me stop there and say, it was pretty... It was pretty easy to become a part of the covenant and be circumcised physically. They didn't really remember that. It was a whole different thing to be circumcised of heart and soul. And he's saying to them, yes, you're physically circumcised, but your heart is far from me. Then he goes on to say, you're just like your ancestors. Nobody ever wants to hear that. You're just like your brother so-and-so. Your sister, man, y'all have the exact same qualities. He says, you always resist, and you, it says, was there ever a prophet your ancestor didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Well, here's the rub, and ultimately what does them in. The law doesn't just keep itself. You have to keep interpreting it. And so when Stephen tries to reinterpret their history and say, this is where you've deviated from God's covenant, they resist it at every turn. It's interesting, that word interpretation. We've, we read about it. We did a whole Bible study series about interpretation of Scripture on one of our Friday noon studies. 
I mean, the question that I remember in the beginning of the book was, does scripture really require interpretation? I mean, if, if it says it, isn't it black and white? Well, apparently, according to millions of Christians who interpret things like creation, evolution, Eucharist, virgin birth, women's roles, sexual ethics, and so on and so forth differently, scripture is more like an organism that breathes than like an inert piece of matter. Interpretation is required. I think we've all been in that point early on in our faith development where interpretation was very simple. I love this little, this anecdote, um, a true one, about a theological student. He'd committed himself to starting his ministry in the north of England when he received a very, very attractive invitation to come down to the south of Wales. And he didn't really feel able to withdraw from his commitments, but one day he was reading Isaiah 43.6. I will say to the north, give up. <laughs> and he concluded that this was God telling him that he would be providentially released from his promise and so free to accept the second invitation. But no such thing happened. However, so he went north after all wondering what had gone wrong. And then he reread Isaiah 43:6 and noticed that it continued. And to the south, do not withhold. Many of us have fallen to sort of these traps of interpretation, which is one of the reasons we laugh because we've all been there, sort of really searching and really wanting direction and discernment and utilizing scripture, of course, for that purpose. But there are places where we get stuck if we stay in one stage of faith development, and it can be egregious in communities. In fact, at Free For All, Philip had made the parallel within our own Baptist story, our own Baptist history, and this story. And it's true, and I, I remember in Baptist history class about when the Baptist faith and message, for many of you who aren't traditionally or um, grew up Baptist, let me give you a little background. Um, in 1963, the Baptist faith and message, which sort of delineated core beliefs, was um, edited, and they made they knew interpretation as a sticky point, and so Christ they had determined was the interpreter of Scripture, and so there was a line in there that said the criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. Now, when in 2000 the Baptist faith and message was rewritten. This is after the fundamentalist takeover. And very interestingly, and this is why interpretation is so important, that line became replaced with all scripture is a testimony to Christ. See the difference? That in the one place, Christ is the lens in which we interpret scripture. The other, Christ is second. To scripture. All scripture is a testimony to Christ. And the Lordship of Christ in the 1963 confession was used actually to bring fundamentalists and moderates together. This was very intentional, to bring both camps together. 
So in 2000, this authority of the Bible was used for the purpose of division. And it was very sad, and it is a sad part of our history. But it's also, I make the point because it's so important to talk about interpretation and the key of interpretation. It's important because, the, in essence, it's asking the question, what is the lens in which we interpret Scripture? What is that lens? Because that's going to make all the difference. And in this text, the religious leadership kept seeing, not through this wide lens of the nomadic spirit and this core Jewish piece of of being obedient and called to be the faithful and to be a blessing to the nation. Yes, there were those, but there were those that began to get very narrow-focused and had a narrow scoped lens. And so, as a result, there was this self-righteousness that was created. And they weren't leaning into the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. And then they became stuck. They became stuck in their own interpretation. And Stephen emphasizes this in this whole big old passage. He says in verse 38, when he talks about the words Moses received at Mount Sinai. He says, the law were living words to pass on to us. Living words. What unfortunately happens, though, when you take this living organism and put a straitjacket on it? That's what happened with the religious leaders. They believed they were sort of keeping this tight hedge of protection around the law, holding the fence close, gatekeepers, But the problem is, when you're keeping the fence close, you better know what the fence is. Again, the law wasn't the enemy. The temple wasn't the enemy. And Stephen goes out of his way to bless these. Jesus said as much when he said he hadn't come to abolish the law, not one iota. But what happens is over time, we become myopic. We need to cleanse the lens. Realize that this is a living word that we follow. And more importantly, a living Lord. May we be given the grace to ourselves, to one another, that we would yearn in community. Because this is how we interpret scripture. It's been very intentional on the part of Providence to interpret scripture together, which we do at Free For All on Tuesday, which we do in the reflecting response time after the sermon and in deeper, it says the voice of the people is and belongs to the people. And so we interpret it in community. May we yearn to know, not just to receive and know this law, but be faithful keepers of it and faithful interpreters of it. May we not resist the Holy Spirit. That's a big one. Because also, like Jesus said, the Holy Spirit blows like this wind. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. May we not resist the Holy Spirit, nor refuse to listen to our history. It's important. And most importantly, may we be obedient to God's first and greatest message, the Shema, to love God with all our heart, with all our might. 
dollar straight. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that if we would do these things and interpret that through the lens of Jesus and even Stephen, we would see and be called to show a love and radical forgiveness and even care for the voiceless that is of most importance in this community and around the world. Let the conversation the interpretation continues.